This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. God, we want to be pure, and we will pray Lord, will you change these things within us? And yet, God, the words that we just sang so often are not true of our hearts. We want you to purify us, but we want you to do it our way. We want you to purify us, but we want it not to be too uncomfortable. And yet, Father, we are declaring, we are requesting, we are petitioning that you indeed wouldn't just make us lovely, burn us lovely. Don't just make us beautiful, burn us beautiful. Don't just make us patient, burn us patient. Father, we need your fire to refine us. So God, will you do that? Not just through the emotions in our hearts, not just through intellectual assent, but will you do that through the working, the washing of the water of your word over our hearts, through your spirit, transforming us, changing us to be pure, like you are pure, to be holy, like you are holy. Will you do that now as we are into your word today? In Jesus' name, amen and amen. That's a, that's a very bold request, isn't it? To request to be pure. It's a bold request because it requires some things that really are outside of us and it requires a, a willingness to be uncomfortable a willingness to be uh, placed almost out of joint. As we have been walking through this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we've been walking through and looking at the ways in which Jesus casts this picture of the kingdom in a way that is very upside down and even feels disjointed, feels uncomfortable. In order to be blessed, in order to be happy, We need to be acknowledging areas of impurities in our heart. In order to be blessed, we have to get to a place where we can mourn all those areas that are impure. To this degree that we are not only able to intellectually realize it, emotionally be broken over it, but then what it means to to turn, what it means to have this yearning for righteousness, this hunger and thirsting afterward. We talked about how this sermon, we're going to be in it for uh, uh, several weeks ahead. And we've talked about all the ways in which this ethos, this cultural way of being has been changed. What is the ethos of the kingdom of Jesus? It's one thing to say that I love God. It's another thing to behave the way God behaves. It's another thing to have a heart that's postured the way God's heart is postured. That's what it means to be pure. You see, we don't get to define what purity is for ourselves. God does. His very nature is what purity is. So he he gives us these values. He gives us this new ethos, these cultural values that govern how and why we function. When I was in the Air Force, you're you're quickly taught what the core values of the Air Force uh, are. And the the three core values that you, when you're in basic training, you're taught, you get up every morning at five something in the morning and you recite them every single day. Integrity, service before self, 
excellence in all we do. Now, every branch and f several companies have similar values like this, but that integrity piece was always one that we were supposed to define. And when you define integrity, I think a lot of us that have this definition, right? Doing the right thing when no one's looking. Integrity, doing the right thing when no one is looking. But what is it that governs? It's easy to say integrity are, is, are these actions, these behaviors. But what are the functional things, these foundational things that govern when we do those behaviors? That's really where integrity comes from. Integrity is not just doing the right thing when no one is looking. There's a heart posture that enables you to do the right thing when no one is looking. When you look at the word integrity, the root word of integrity, my engineering background comes through and I love math, so math nerds are going to love this. You look at the word integrity, the root word is integer. The idea of an integer, it's a whole number. It's never broken into fractions, right? So the idea of integrity is completely integrated, undivided loyalty, undivided, uh, undivided attention, undivided, undivided compassion, undivided love. Whole numbers as opposed to a fraction can't be split or divided into other numbers. So, so to have integrity is to have fully integrated ways of thinking, of feeling, of being. It's an undivided heart and undivided mind. Now this isn't new. We've seen this in the Old Testament. David in Psalm 86 said, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will live by your truth. Give me an undivided heart or undivided mind to fear your name. The men of the tribe of Zebulun, if you look back in First uh, Chronicles, they, the scripture says they helped David with an undivided heart. That word literally means without a double heart, without double loyalty, without double love, if you will. It basically is this idea of being all in, of one heart, of one mind, nothing held back. The folks who struggle with having a double mind or a double heart, uh, these are folks about whom David said in Psalms, they lie to one another. They speak with flattering lips and deceptive hearts. That word in the Hebrew again is double hearts. It literally means a heart and a heart. This idea of two natures, two deep passions warring and contending with one another. Two natures that are struggling for sovereignty over another. In this sixth beatitude that we're going to walk through here, Jesus is describing what an undivided heart should be. He's, he's really telling us and prescribing for us the kind of heart that enables us to see God, to know God, what it truly means. It's, again, this is why it's dangerous when we start defining for ourselves what it means to know God. Well, I feel close to God when this happens. Well, I feel close to God when I go travel to this place. Not, all, not untrue, you may feel close to God. Feeling close to, having close proximity to, is not the same as knowing. Having close proximity to is not the same thing as even seeing. You just might have close proximity and you feel, you can feel the closeness, you can be far enough away from a fire, you don't see the fire, but you might feel the heat. But that is not the same as knowing fire, as understanding fire. 
And this is really what Jesus is getting at as we walk through these Beatitudes. Again, we're going to read through them all again. Because these Beatitudes, as we saw, they build one on top of the other. You cannot possibly understand this Beatitude if we don't understand all of the ones that came before. So let's read together. Matthew chapter 5. Again, this famous, the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount. And this, here's Jesus is giving this definition of what kingdom living should be. Y'all, every time we read this, we need to be going through this deep diagnostic check of our own hearts and minds because all of us have it. We all have a kingdom. Everyone here has, has a kingdom. You have a kingdom amongst yourselves and you're always battling, right? The, the kingdom of God, as it encroaches into our lives, is battling against our own individual kingdoms. So you should be asking the question every time, what parts of my kingdom are being crushed as I learn more about God's kingdom? If you can't identify that, you're still the king of your own kingdom. We all, the mo- unless we are gone to glory and we are continually being sanctified, there should be something that's always being carved out in you that goes, wow, there's an area where I'm still trying to be king or queen. There's an area where I'm still trying to have sovereignty. And the more I learn about God's kingdom, the more these things begin to get pruned, refined, burned out of me. So listen to these words again. We've gone through now the last month and a half. Listen to these words again as we go into this sixth beatitude. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for their kingdom of heaven, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble or meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've got this word pure. Blessed are the pure in heart. We have to ask ourselves the question, as we often do when we're in the text, what does this word mean? And not just what this, we've tried to say this many times, be very careful when you're reading the scriptures and getting in the habit of reading yourself into the text. Don't start with, what does this mean to me? Because you will make it say whatever you want it to mean to you. You start with, what did this originally mean? What did the author intend when they wrote this word? What did God intend when through the power of the Holy Spirit, he breathed this through to the author? And then also, what would this have meant to the original hearers? That way we don't start creating things that just make sense or that just feels good for us. So what would this have meant during that time, that idea of being pure? Because pure is a word that we've got a lot of usages for. We have a lot of ways that we define it. Some healthy, not so healthy. So how do we figure out what purity looks like here? There's a variety of uses. The Greek word for pure is this word katharos. It's where we get the word Catherine. It's where we get a few other words we're going to walk through in a minute. It means pure, right? But how was it used? This word in the Greek was used uh, in a few different ways. Uh, One way was to describe um, soiled clothes that have been washed clean. They were then uh, katharos. And then you had uh, another way of using it. Uh, Whenever you had an army of soldiers 
which had uh, been purged of the discontented, unwilling, cowardly, insufficient soldiers. And in so doing, you would leave only the first class soldiers available to fight. That was purifying your military. And then the third one is the one that we had and we heard described up here during the last song. Metals that had been refined until all of the impurities were gone, leaving only pure silver or pure gold. So you've got this picture, this picture of pure that means pure, it means clean, it means unmixed, it means undivided. This idea that there's some type of impurity or some type of thing that's keeping or precluding other things from going forward, and those things that are stopping it need to be excised from it. Pure. Now, the process of removing impurities in ancient Greek, it, there's another word that we probably know today, and we know it in a different way. Whenever you're removing the impurities, whenever you're trying to make something uh, catharos, you actually go through something called catharsis. We know that word now, when something is cathartic, it's, you know, I just have so many things that are, so many things that are weighing me down. There are so many emotional and psychological encumbrances uh, out of which I need to move because I can't function any longer. And so I need to do some type of uh, uh, behavior, some type of action, or go to some place. Why? Because it's cathartic. It removes whatever emotional impurity, if you will, that's keeping me from being fully integrated. And so this idea of catharsis, I think we all can understand and apprehend to some degree, but we need to go further here because Jesus is really telling us unless spiritually a catharsis occurs, if our hearts are not purified, if our hearts don't undergo some form of catharsis, then we can't possibly see him. So this purity, that this, this is super important because he, he's calling us not just to just purity for purity's sake. He qualifies it. Purity of the heart. So what does it mean then to be pure in heart? Well, the corollary is also true then. If he, we need to be reminded that, we, that our hearts need to be pure, then, it, then the assumption is true, and it stands to reason that our hearts are on their own going to be impure. That we have a tendency, a propensity, this proclivity to uh, have an impure heart, to have mixed and divided feelings and mixed and divided loyalties. Our hearts are naturally, we're born with these divided feelings, these divided loyalties. Why does Jesus have to remind us of this over and over again? And we are going to see this multiple times throughout this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and several times throughout the Gospels. This constant call, this constant reminder for our hearts to be pure. We are prone to have divided, mixed hearts in many areas. Mixed loyalties to each other, mixed loyalties to God, these mixed commitment levels. That's why when you look back in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, you see Ezekiel, uh, the word saying, I will give them integrity of heart, this purity of heart, and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone and replace it, give them a heart of flesh. Again, hearts are always needing to be changed, right? Because there's a natural impurity that's there. He's promising an integrity of heart, an undivided heart. So what is a divided heart? How do we know when our hearts 
are divided. That's a really big point because I believe a divided heart oftentimes is our greatest enemy. Our own hearts being divided and being impure should be one of our, if not our greatest fear. Why? Because a divided heart wreaks havoc on your contentment and it undermines your devotion. Do, do you see that? And, and a divided heart will wreak havoc on your contentment and it will undermine your devotion. It corrupts our worship. Why? Because one side of our heart is competing with the other side. And if you look at it as two hearts, one heart is competing with the other heart, right? In either, in either case, the competition causes us to tell God what we, uh, we'll tell God, uh, we want to love you and we want to honor you. But at the same time, we're telling ourselves we can pursue our own agenda at our own will. So there's this, in many ways, there's this, uh, 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 in many ways, there's this kind of disingenuous way in which we talk. I love God and I'm going to sing to you. I want you to refine me. I want you to refine me until you start refining. And then I'm like, no, 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 God, that can't be you. No, no, this doesn't feel right. No, I don't, I, this isn't comfortable. No, but I had made up in my mind that this was the right thing or this should have been the, the best thing. My preference that I turned into uh, your will, uh, my preference isn't happening now. Now I'm frustrated. Now I'm upset. Why? Because multiple loves in this sense, these kind of ways of loving two things that are con contrary in nature, Anything contrary to what God wants is a contrary thing. Multiple loves in this sense will always weaken. And we're going to see Jesus say this later in Matthew 6. You're going to see him talking about serving two masters, right? We're going to see what he says about that because ultimately he says you will be compelled to love one and hate the other. You will end up doing one thing at the expense of the other. That's really what he means when he talks about loving one, hating the other. Something's going to win out. You can't do both. Something's going to win out. And so when you're compelled to choose one or the other, this is where choice, choice is incredible. Choices are wonderful things. But sometimes we have what some call an embarrassment of riches. I have so many things to choose from. How do I figure out what the right thing is? This is where knowing God's heart is vital. Because if I start to choose things over here that maybe on the face of it are good, but might be contrary to something that God says is right, great, and holy, then I will be forced to compromise. I just will. I'm holding on to two things. So with all of that said, in order for us to understand, and what Jesus is showing us, in order for us to understand how to have an undivided, pure heart, we need to understand first that it's referring to this inner moral righteousness. The inner moral righteousness and how we ascertain what is right and what is right morally for ourselves. You see, we know this when we when we walk through the way that God changes us, the way that he loves us, what his holiness looks like. When he begins to change our hearts, here's what happens. Things like jealousy, anger, pride and selfishness become replaced by selflessness, humility, love and patience. And when these things start happening with a, with a singularity of focus, 
Jesus says we grow in relationship to him. That's what he means by us seeing God, knowing God. We grow in relationship to to him so that we see him now, and then eventually we see him fully. It's an already not yet principle. You see God, you get to know him increasingly, and then eventually we get to know him fully. So this commitment If we're talking about what it means to have a pure, undivided heart, then a commitment to being selfless should win out whenever pride creeps up. But holding a bit of selflessness while at the same time holding on to a little jealousy is what it means to be double minded. You got it. We have to understand this. If there are certain things that we're like, well, I'm holding to this thing. This thing is true about God. I'm holding on to this thing. That's true. I believe that. But I also have these things over here, and this is how we, we've talked about this before, this is how we justify it. Well, but this, I'm just wired this way. I mean, I know God wants me to be over here, but I'm just this kind of person. You don't understand that. This is just who I'm wired to be. And so you just got to pray for me because God is still working on me. That's cute. We say that. But really, when I say God is still working on me, that doesn't mean I'm praying for him to burn me and refine me. That just means I want you to just sit and deal with that because I don't have any intention of changing. So, so we've got to kind of move from that, right? Because there are some things I might be holding that I know I believe this about God, but then I'm holding on to these things about me. And because I'm really my own God, I worship myself. So I'm going to tell you, you just have to accept these things are just who I am. I'm just not wired this way and that's it. As if God has done the sanctify. He's, he's through with the sanctifying process in that part of my life. I'm beyond sanctification at this point. You see the pride? You see how that double-mindedness actually doesn't help anyone? So we've got to be super careful because what Jesus is getting at is really the same thing that his brother ended up getting at in his own book in James 1, 7 and 8. Remember what James, the brother of Jesus, says. He says when he talks about praying, he talks about what it means to ask and pray with doubt. He says, let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. And then later, what he ends up telling us, and this is the one that is so huge, he says, uh, when, he, when he walks in and he talks about when we're praying, and this is a big one, when we're praying, there's a, there's a, there's a place where James starts to get, make it clear. If we're praying and we pray in such a way, where uh, 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 we're double-minded in all of our ways. The scripture says a a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. One of the things that he shows us is that the things that he prays will not even be answered. You ever really thought about that? We love to be like, well, we're just going to pray about it. How do you know God's going to answer it? If you're double-minded, if you don't have singularity of focus and desire for God's heart in the matter, your prayers won't even be answered. I know that we like to create like this version of like Santa Claus God that's like he just I mean, he knows when 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 I'm when I'm not right. And he knows these things. It's almost like grandfather God. And he's just always going to be loving me no matter what, which he does. But in many ways, it's like so I'm just I'm going to pray about it. Things that I know for sure I have no intention of changing, but I'm going to pray about it. Is that purity of heart or is that double mindedness? If it's double mindedness. God says, I'm not even responding to that because a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So there's nothing, there's nothing to respond to if I have mixed motives or contrary motives in my prayer. I don't know if we understand this, but I, I, I don't know if you've ever really thought through what are the things that could happen 
where God does not answer my prayer, doesn't even hear my prayer, because there are other places where God says he doesn't even hear our prayers. You see how important purity is? How important it is to have an undivided heart on these matters? This won't move you at all if the version of God you've created for yourself, you believe is the true one. Because if you've created, which we all do at times, create a version of God that is more palatable to us, then this kind of a sermon won't move us at all. Be like, okay, that's great. My God wouldn't do that. But your God might not be the God. And so we need to ensure that purity of heart is always what we're gunning for. It's not let me find a way to retrofit my idea of God to the things that I'm most comfortable with. This is where Jesus, he has to bring this to our attention regularly because this is what we're prone to do over and over again. This is what we're prone to do, which brings us to the second. So the first is, yes, uh, pure purity of heart refers to this inner moral righteousness. The second point, more importantly, I think, is the idea. And this is connected. The undivided pure heart refers to being sincere and free of hypocrisy, sincerity and free of hypocrisy. Now it's connected to inner moral righteousness, but I think it's helpful to emphasize this aspect because again, this is something that we're going to see emphasized over and over again, not only in Jesus's sermon, but throughout the rest of the gospels. We see it repeatedly. Again, we're going to look at chapter six, when Jesus calls for the disciples not to be like the Pharisees, right? These leaders, these teachers of the law, who did a lot of their acts of righteousness, right? Praying, giving, fasting, worshiping, singing. They did all of those things in order to be seen by others. And in the context of the church, this is something that anyone who serves in ministry, officially or unofficially, should be aware of. It is very, very easy to serve and to do good works for the applause of others. It is extremely easy to do good works for the applause of others. One of the things that Jesus is going to point out, you're going to see when people are doing all these holy things and I, I prayed and I worshiped and I preached and I sang and I served and I did all these things and, and people were very happy and there's good fruit that came out of all of these things. You realize none of those things have anything to do with your heart. They're not bad things and they could be indicative of things that are good in the heart, but they're not proof of anything in your heart. They're not proof. You can't. The, the only way that you know in this context, here's how you can check the purity of your heart as a servant or as a leader. Look at how you, you respond when you are either criticized or praised by others. Think about how you respond if you are criticized or praised by others. If your heart is a divided, mixed, impure heart, criticism will overly discourage you and praise will overly excite you. That's just how it works. Because if I'm trusting in my good works in order to maintain whatever it is, whatever it's the, the influence I have or the relationship that I have, if I'm trusting in the good works themselves, then the criticism will be crushing. If we're working in a humble environment, then criticism and critique should be an invitation for more purification. Oh man, I didn't realize this. Why? What did we say before? That humility, I wouldn't do what? Wouldn't put it past me. That's what humility is. So the moment critique comes, you don't start with, no, 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 that can't be it. Oh, no, 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 you don't understand. Oh, no, 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 no. 
It may be something else, but start with, and I, I can't put that past me though. That's, a, that's, that's possible. That's something that very well could be true. It doesn't have to crush me because I realize, my goodness, if that's the thing, then man, God is in the business of continuing to sanctify. So here is the thing I need to lay before God. Here's the thing that needs to happen and, and work on. I don't have to be defensive because I'm not the one. Ultimately, the one who is responsible for my holiness isn't me, it's God. So let me bring this to him. Now, if that's the case, the other thing is true too then. If I'm, uh, uh, praise will get me overly excited. And that's something we all struggle with. We, who doesn't like being praised? Who doesn't like being told the thing that you did was successful. Who doesn't like being told that word that you said was encouraging? Who doesn't like being told the work that you did brought this kind of fruit? Nothing wrong with that. The key thing though is, if I'm trusting in those good works to solidify an identity for myself, then that thing that I'm doing is actually more of an idol. And when that idol gets challenged, that's when the heart proves itself to be, uh, to be mixed and, uh, and divided and impure. So Jesus is really calling us. Jesus always cares. This is one of the things that has always been a hard thing throughout Christendom. Jesus always cares more about the heart underneath the works that you're doing. It's great to have these um, incredible works and giftedness. And it's one of the reasons why we love to point out the fact that in church, all over, anywhere, giftedness always seems to be praised more than fruitfulness. Giftedness is always praised more often than not than fruitfulness. If you're good at a certain talent, if you have a, a special gift and it's used for the service of the Lord, awesome. Why? Th those things are the things that are most public. Those are the things that we uh, get more praise about. And so, uh, but the things that are fruitful, right? The fruit of the spirit, long suffering, patience, goodness, self-control, those don't get badges. We don't have certifications for that. Who gets a certificate for being patient in church? But we'll have preacher awards. Who gets uh, praised for the ones who are just long suffering? Who gets praised for the ones that show incredible hospitality in certain ways? That's not, but you realize those things that we're describing in Galatians 5, those are the gifts of, I'm sorry, those are, yeah, those are the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Those are the things that show whether or not the purity of heart is real, whether or not the spirit has actually overtaken our own hearts. There's plenty of people in the scriptures who show giftedness and are gifted by the spirit. Uh, and it looks like just temporarily they were being used, but some of them still weren't following Jesus. How do we know that? There were people who cast demons out. I don't know how you're more gifted spiritually than to be able to cast a demon out of someone. And people went to Jesus and said, we cast demons out in your name. And what did he say to them? I never knew you. You know what that tells me? You can be gifted and still not know it. But you can't be fruitful and not know it. The spiritual fruit, the fruit of the spirit, that's what we should be yearning for. I grew up in a church tradition where what was praised were the gifts more than the fruit. So you'd have somebody that had this incredible spiritual gift that can be beneficial for the body. We've preached on that before. The, gift, the purpose of all spiritual gifts are to benefit the body first, not you. And so there are people who have incredible gifts and will cuss you out on Monday. Have no kind of patience, no kind of fruit of the spirit at all. But you can't say anything. Why? Because they show spiritual giftedness on Sunday. 
So I can't say anything about that person. I can't say anything. I can't. I, I'm, something must be wrong with me because I know that they have get, that they're close to God because did you hear them pray? That has nothing to do with fruitfulness spiritually. Nothing to do. So this idea of us knowing kind of what's happening on a deep heart level, this has always been the concern of Jesus. It's always been there where we say it, it's become a cliche. The heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart. Always. On some level, there's a heart, a heart posture that is disjointed. And we have to be careful. But this same principle applies even outside of serving in a local church. This principle applies in friendships, family relationships, marriages. If your motivations are mixed, divided, or impure, then your stated desire that says, I love this other person, it becomes abrogated by your desires to contrarily love other things at other people's expense. So it's not, I mean, let's use this, if we're not just talking about serving in church, but we're talking about still even within church uh, relationships that we have. When there are conflicts, which are inevitable when you have people together, that's about our church. When there are conflicts that occur, you got, oh, you got to hold multiple things. Okay, God, God requires me to, if I have an issue, to be able to go to this other person. I need to go to them and be able to share what's happening. And I want to do that. Be, why? Not so that I can be right or be wrong or prove the other person. But I want to do that for the reason of cr- building real unity. Let's make sure that we are here knowing where God's heart is so that we can deal with that. But if I fail to do that, I'm actually creating a mixture of heart right now. This is important because I feel like this, the area of conflict resolution is still one that is done so poorly everywhere and, and including the church. Because it's uncomfortable. And I prefer comfort over dealing with conflict resolution. I prefer that. So I've got to mix mine on the matter, don't I? But if I want to be able to go after genuine reconciliation, I don't have that luxury. I, I, I can take that luxury, but if I have the heart of God, I don't have that luxury. I have got to pursue and deal with this the right way. This is true in churches, and this is true in relationships. In marriage, people who are married, when you, if one person is frustrated or angry because an expectation has not been met, and you sit on it, because you're like, well, you know, either A, hopefully it'll change on its own by osmosis. Good luck with that. Or, or I'll just hold on to it because it's not that big of a deal and I'm sure I'll get over it. But I don't communicate the thing. And I sit on that for a while. And that expectation just continues to go unmet. And we all know this. Unmet expectations become present and future resentment. And now there's division. We see this. This is the reason why in Matthew 18 later, Jesus talks about what it means to deal with conflict resolution, how important it is to go to the other person. Why? Because divided hearts always hurt. Divided loyalties always hurt. So again, you might state, I love this person. I love my sibling. I love my friend. I love my fellow church member. I might say that over here. But the things that I do show a divided heart and cause real division. You know what this is? When someone specifically in a marriage and some type of infidelity occurs or some type of betrayal occurs, you realize how hard this statement can be? Listen, I know my love or desire for this other thing or this other person betrayed you or hurt you, but you know I love you, right? How does that land? 
Do those words mean anything? It doesn't mean that a person may not hold love and concern or what have you, but what you're basically saying is, my love for something else superseded my love for you. I have divided love. Divided love is no love at all. That's the reason why Jesus is making it clear for us that a pure heart, a undivided heart, is what allows us to see God. Nothing else. It's very exclusive. An undivided heart. The same happens in our relationships. An undivided heart is what creates and builds real intimacy and trust with one another. So this applies across the board. Divided love does not feel like love at all. But this goes even further. So not just in our personal relationships, let's make it very real. Something that has been prayed for today, something that is on our minds, especially now. This applies to us as citizens who are responsible for loving their neighbor. What did you, what did, I mean, we know this, right? This is, I'm not just making this up. This isn't some politically driven agenda thing. God makes it very clear. What are the, what's the most important commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. That's not if you get around to it. That's not if you're wired to love your neighbor. That's not that. This is something that is incontrovertible. This is clear. There's no debate. There's no equivocation. There's no oscillation. This is something that if we have the spirit of God in us, we are called to do with reckless abandon. So if I'm a citizen responsible for loving my neighbor, this is why. The reason why hypocrisy, we see Jesus is going to talk about this later. The reason why hypocrisy and a divided heart is so damaging is because it, it causes a divided, impure, divided love for the neighbor. If I'm not clear and I'm not sing, I have this singularity of focus about what it means to love the neighbor, then I will have a divided love for the neighbor and then the neighbor will end up suffering. We've uh, talked already about the horrific thing that happened this past week. And you get many people, specifically in Christian circles, uh, many people outside of Christian circles who will see what they view to be a huge amount of hypocrisy for those within the church-going so-called Christian community. Because uh, you, you, you have uh, folks in one circle that are like, we love life. And we are whatever so-called pro-life positions are, People will say, well, I pro-life. And yet when it comes down to issues of massacres, the language is not the same. And people wonder, but if you held to that with a purity of heart, then where is the consistency? Hypocrisy always makes people question the purity of your heart. It doesn't really matter what the issue is. If we struggle with consistency willfully, then people have a good reason to wonder if that love is just a divided one and not a pure one. Five days ago, we've talked about this gunman who used a semi-automatic weapon to shoot and kill 19 elementary school children. Two school teachers, deadliest shooting since a gunman killed 20 children and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary 10 years ago. 14 days ago, it was a grocery store in Buffalo. Before that, it was a church. At other times, it was a concert. Other times, it's a nightclub, a shopping mall, a movie theater, a high school, a workplace, a military base, a baseball diamond, even a home. And yet, those who claim with great purity to be so-called pro-life are more likely to support legislators who don't advocate for restricting access to the kind of weapons designed for killing large numbers of people within a small amount of time. 
The occurrence of dead elderly people wasn't enough. The occurrence of innocent dead service members wasn't enough. The occurrence of dead teenagers wasn't enough. The occurrence of dead fourth graders wasn't enough. So in other words, there is a divided, mixed, impure heart behind stating a pro-life position while defending and advocating for access to mass casualty producing death weaponry. How? How? It's not enough to say, well, we're godly people and we care about, yes, and we care about life and everything. Well, how, how much, how consistent, how pure, how pure is that desire? Having a pure heart saves us individually. And indeed, it saves lives systemically. It saves lives corporately. It's not enough to tell people God loves you. And then we find the point at which we can restrict that same love because it doesn't fit into whatever camp we're in. This idea of purity of heart is much larger than I think we, we, we pay attention to. I don't know that we understand how serious it is, but it's so serious. You realize this is the first time when we get to this part of the Beatitudes where Jesus basically says, if this doesn't happen, you can't know God. Which means we have to always be asking the question, how pure is this? Usually when purity comes up, it's all about these outer things. Have you done this? You're impure. Have you done this? Okay, conversation for that for sure. This is deeper than that. Does your heart burn in the way God's heart burns? Do you long for the things God's heart longs for? We say it and we even sing it, but what does it mean to say, I want to hate the things that God hates? And I want to love the things God loves. If I do that, that should happen holistically. So how does it happen? How do we get to a place where uh, areas in our heart, where maybe they're impure, we're seeing it, right? That idea of of how, how does catharsis occur in our hearts, in our impure areas of our hearts? What does catharsis look like? Well, the first, and this is where it's really good. We've talked about the issue of thoughts and prayers by themselves. Not enough, just thoughts and prayers by themselves. However, prayer is hugely important and we're called to pray. So this isn't to say that prayer is not needed. But how do we do that on a heart level? Well, we pray for a purity of heart in order to grow in purity of heart. We see that in David. David said this in Psalms 51.10. God created me a clean heart, renewing me a right or steadfast spirit. He says, don't Cast me not, don't cast me away, don't banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. What does it mean to pray for purity for us? What does that mean? I mean, we'll say, I'm going to pray about it, but if we're praying for purity, then we're praying, we're inviting some of these things to be burned and excised out. So what does that mean? Well, it means to walk through the first three Beatitudes that we said everything is built upon. If I'm saying, God, I need, I want you to purify my heart, then that means, God, give me the ability to intellectually see and understand and acknowledge the ways in which my heart is impure on this particular matter or that particular matter. Give me the ability to intellectually know, to acknowledge it. Then give me the emotional ability to respond emotionally. The impure heart that keeps me from loving 
God or loving my neighbor well. Because I know that that I'm broken. I'm broken over that because I know what it is. I know that it breaks God's heart in all the ways I don't love him well. And I know it breaks his heart in all the ways I don't love my neighbor well. And I'm emotionally moved by that. This is not just, it's not enough to just know, yeah, I know that's wrong. I've said this before, and I think this happens a lot in relationships especially. People love to say, no, I know that. I know that's true about me, and I, and I, and I take accountability for that. No, you just acknowledged it. Acknowledgement is different from accountability. That's something we got to struggle. I'll just say this specifically. Men, that's something we struggle with for sure. I know that was wrong. I know it was wrong, and I acknowledge that. I, I, I take accountability for that. Just stating that you were wrong is not accountability. It's merely acknowledgement. Accountability is, and here are the things empirically that I can show that I'm going to be doing to make sure that these things don't occur again. That's accountability. So, so the acknowledgement piece is great. I can see that I'm broken and I see these things are there, but am I emotionally mourning my impurity so much that it moves me to go from the intellectual, intellectual and the emotional to the volitional, the willingness to rid myself of anything that corrupts my heart and my mind. A singularity of focus in loving God and loving the neighbor well. This is my individual pursuits, my political power or position, personal preferences. Any of those things I'm willing to set aside in order to pursue singleness of focus, singularity of focus, in order to pursue this idea of being pure, this idea of being unmixed and undivided. And finally, what is the promise then? When that happens, we will see God. We will know God. We will experience God more fully, which then it becomes this beautiful cycle of the more I know about God, the more pure my heart becomes. And the more pure my heart becomes, the more I know about God. And so it's this beautiful cycle that continues to happen until Jesus returns. Remember, remember just what, what, what Paul told us here. He said, dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know now, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The more we hope to see, the more we hope to serve Jesus, the more we will want to be pure the more we will want to be unmixed, the more we will want to be undivided in our hearts, in our minds, in our commitments, and in our loyalties. This is the kind of purity that becomes our highest pursuit in life. And when that happens, when that undivided purity happens, then there's no cost that we are unwilling to pay. There's no height that we are unwilling to climb in order to know and see God. So, blessed are the pure in heart, for they, and they alone, will see God. May God purify our hearts today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you, you, are, you are good for just because you are who you are. And you show, you display your goodness in us by honestly telling us, I love you. And I love you enough to meet you exactly where you are, but I'm not leaving you there. I am changing you. I am refining you. 
And so God, even if there are areas in which we feel levels of discomfort, areas that we might even feel hard and things are difficult, God, I thank you for that because those are areas that show that you're still pruning, that you're still purifying. So God, I pray that with great humility, we engage this process that beyond just whatever issue that we're on, Lord, I know that there are times where uh, there are things that we might hold to because of where we come from and things that we might hold to individually about what it means to be in relationships and what it means to repent and what it means to acknowledge impurities in our own hearts. God, so many reasons we have baked in for why we ought to hold on to them. And yet, God, I pray that your refiner's fire would burn through and melt the icy areas, the icy uh, ventricles and the atria in our hearts. Burn those away, melt those away so that nothing but your spirit, your love, your mercy, your justice, your grace, your gospel emanates throughout. God, we want this to be your story and not ours. And we say it. God, I pray that we would truly live that. Let us not have mixed loyalties, mixed commitments. God, I pray that we want and have a deep and abiding desire and jealousy for your glory in our lives. Because ultimately, God, before we see ourselves and before we see our story, we want to see you. And we pray that now in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.